Hi everyone, uh, this is Madhumita Mantri. I'm a product lead at an early stage uh, B2B startup in Bay Area called uh, Startree. It's into real-time analytics and anomaly detection space. I'm uh, super excited to be uh, here with Nick again. Uh, this is our episode two uh, to um, talk about mastering data science and AI product management. A quick recap, uh, in episode one, we talked about introduction to data science and AI ML product management, identifying the opportunities for it, and building and developing data science and AI ML products. So today, our focus is going to be launching and scaling these products and the future of data science and AI ML product management. So that's how we will wrap up. Um, I have some questions I'll go through that uh, with Nick. And uh, if in case audience are joining and they have questions, they can always ask in the chat and towards the end, I'll unmute and they can ask questions live. And we will be recording. In, in fact, we are recording the session and I'll publish this in my newsletter uh, and also in various podcast channels such as Spotify and YouTube. So in case you are not able to make it, uh, you can definitely listen to it offline or read offline. With that, I'll open up the floor and um, welcome Nick. So great to see you again and always admire how your um, background is and uh, how motivated and uh, inspiring you are, um, like sharing your knowledge. So quick introduction, and then what's not in your LinkedIn profile, then I'll dive into questions. Yeah, sure. Really glad to be, to be here because we do have a really great conversation last time. So happy to join the, 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 the crew again. And uh, hi, everyone. I'm Nicholas. I am PM at Google, focused on the internal data products. And the fun fact is that I'm the, I'm kind of a mixed person of between the world of digital, which is, you know, building the software products and data products, as well as more traditional world, like physical world, like I'm a car person. So I, I'm also very into like a mechanical things. So that's that, you know, that bring me some capability and the mindset that, hey, try to get hands dirty and, you know, try to help build something that people will use. Yeah. Awesome. That was a quick intro. Um, great to know you. And I'm sure audience will also have fun learning about you. Uh, so let's dive into uh, today's topic. Uh, again, a quick recap, folks who just joined. Um, so today's episode uh, will be covering launching and scaling data science and AIML products. And we'll be talking about the future of data science and AIML product management overall. Last week, we did talk about the intro to this uh, area and then identifying opportunities for such products and building and developing such products. So in case um, you haven't got a chance to listen to that, um, I will be pub publishing both the uh, episode one, episode two re recap in my newsletter. And there are various podcast channels, Spotify and YouTube. You can get to um, listen to it offline. So that's a quick uh, intro. With that, um, I'll dive into today's topic. Uh, the first section, we will be talking about launching and scaling data science and AI ML products. If you have questions, feel free to type in all those in chat. Uh, we will definitely get to it, answer live or offline. 
the format is I'll go through the question, we'll have a conversation and then we'll open up the floor for discussion. Sometime we run over, so maybe it'll take uh, the whole hour. Uh, aim is to finish it uh, as per the time. So um, Nick, first question in terms of launching and scaling data science and AI ML product. Um, how can someone create effective go-to-market strategies uh, for uh, such products? Yeah, sure. So go-to-market strategy is a very big topic. That's a consistent conversation between PMs and the PMMs, right? Uh, product marketing managers. Uh, but the, for specifically the machine learning AI products, I do want to mention something which is slightly different, maybe not apply to other products. But if you are building machine learning AI products, keep this in mind, which is the market segmentation, especially geographically. Uh, let me give you one example. When I was at PayPal as the data science PM, we are building a recommendation feature that's actually a mix of five different models. And each model responsible for different geographic uh, location or region. There are two reasons to do this. The first reason is that, you know, Different people in different region, may, population in different region may have different interests. They may have different economic conditions. They also have very different culture, right? That's the, that's impact to the personalization part. So it makes sense, you know, sometimes you may do some customization based on the, separate the models into different, uh, use different model to different regions. That's the first reason. The second reason is getting more and more important, which is the regulation. We roughly talk about how challenging of the machine learning AI product is because if you are building a traditional rule-based product, you are really you are almost a hundred percent certain about your business logic. When you apply machine learning AI, there is always this uncertainty because the machine learning AI model, as it gets more and more complicated, human cannot interpret it. It becomes more and more like a, a gray box, right? But the regulators won't take this as an excuse to say, "Hey, oh, I got it." You, you just do it. That's not the case. There will be always more and more regulation regarding data, regarding uh, machine learning AI application. So breakdown into different regions has this benefit that, you know, you can base on, you can separate those uh, regulation risks based on different regions because usually, you know, region has tend to have their own similarity. So again, this is the two reasons why, you know, the market segmentation is, I, I feel it's very critical and it's, also quite different compared to the traditional product features. Yeah, so well said. Um, thanks for sharing your experience with FinTech. Uh, I, I know FinTech is a challenging space and const constantly the regulatory acts are evolving. So catching up with that and then determining what is your go-to market strategy going to be, it's extremely hard. A uh, good part is like knowing the market segment ahead uh, will definitely help. Uh, I, I just wanted to add a few things to this uh, based on my experience at LinkedIn. And now I'm working at a startup, uh, two different spectrum. What I've uh, learned in LinkedIn, uh, of course, it was more of a social media, more consumer uh, kind of space. And uh, back then I was working with trust and uh, feed AI teams. And one of the challenges, uh, it's during pandemic uh, when there were a lot of misinformation was floating around on LinkedIn. And that became a big challenge in terms of how to uh, quickly address that. Um, I think team was great, like in quickly rolling out a couple of models to take care of that. However, the go-to market was very, very challenging. 
although the market segment were very clear, but the channels and how we will roll out and uh, will it uh, resonate? with the individuals because some places it might be okay versus some places it's not okay. So how to control that whole um, like challenge. And there were a bunch of team working together, like including legal and news team who were constantly listening and then crafting this messaging correctly, which was extremely important. And that was one of the challenge I faced at LinkedIn. It was completely different where more of challenge uh, channel and messaging was important. Uh, at at my startup, what I've seen, uh, since it is early stage, we are getting to product market fit. So it's a continuous journey of learning. And it's interesting, like initially we'll think one market segment is your primary, but as you validate your hypothesis, it is changing. So the go-to market becomes even more harder uh, once your product is ready, like whether you want to serve to this uh, persona or or this segment versus the other segment. And based on the two different segments, the messaging could be completely different. And the way we are trying to address is like doing A-B test, like what resonates with the users most. And, and of course, AI, ML, and data science products makes it even more harder because the cycles are pretty long and you can't have like quick uh, like validation. Yeah. So um, great. We since we talked about the go-to market strategy for this. Anything else, Nick? You wanted to add um, before I jump into the other questions here? Um. Yeah. Again, the data quality is always the always align with the you know how we can how model can perform well, right? So data uh, data quality the way. The easiness to get the data is also very different in different market for different population. I think that's also something to keep in mind. Yeah, that's a critical part of GTM. And how would you monitor once uh, the performance of the model? Because uh, if the data is changing or as you were talking about regulatory acts are changing, how to keep up? Um, anything that you are aware based on your experience at uh, FinTech, how were you handling these challenges, like overcoming those challenges? Once the model is out, and uh, I know that there's like GTM success based on the launch goals that you would have set up. Um, that's clearly like there are KPIs you will be tracking, but besides that, like what is unique about like these products? Yes, so I think we can break down, you know, products into, for example, risk related. Which is you know fraud, fraud detection, uh, money laundering detection, those things versus non-risk uh, in fintech, which is more marketing or you know uh, other recommendations. I think the way to see this is really how does the value population, uh, sorry, uh, end users value proposition align with the metrics you are tracking, right? If you are trying to see how much profitable coming from those uh, you know non-risk type of products, then you need to make sure the monetization is certainly one, you know, one of the key metrics that you are, that you are tracking. If you are caring about the risk type of product that you care, you know, we don't, we certainly don't want users feel our products, you know, has bad reputation, a lot of fraud happening here and there, and it got, it got suspended. Then those, you know, uh, detection rate, the, the success rate or correctness is certainly some metrics need to tracking. So again, in the user end-to-end -end, uh, life cycle, making sure the value proposition is aligned with the metrics you care the most is the most critical question as a PM. 
Yeah, very well said. Value proposition is extremely important. And uh, I mean, time to value for these products are also very long. I mean, do you have any tips for the audience or aspiring PMs um, who will be interested in learning like how uh, somebody can work towards time to value for, especially for data science and AI ML product? Because it's a consumer product, you immediately see it in action. But these are like under the hood, but this is what the company is taking measures for and how it's going to add value Um Anything that you want to share on that? Yeah, I certainly want to bring up one thing, which is bring the experts into the table, in uh, onto the table, or bring into the meeting as early as possible is certainly critical. Especially if we are talking about machine learning AI, try to make sure don't see the data scientist or data engineer as the supporting team. See them as your early partner to try to make this product or make this project success. It's very critical. This mindset, you know, lots of companies start see analytics and the data science as the supporting uh, teams to start with. But again, immediately they will figure out, okay, it's actually better investment to treat them as the early partners to think of the problem and they're trying to interpret and translate into the more technical perspective and then making sure the implementation tracking everything is properly done. I think that's the really important mindset need, uh, need to be changed. Yeah, completely agree. Collaboration and bringing SMEs ahead uh, will definitely help in crafting what is the uh, like value proposition you're going to share and how uh, what time it would take so that as a PM you can take care of those um, like blockers or risks to make sure it's uh, the value is felt uh, to the users at the early pos at the earliest possible. Great. Um, so my next question is, what are some of the key factors uh, that drive user adoption and success for these uh, kind of products, especially? Okay. I mean, of course, there are non-DSN uh, products, okay. AIML products, where we know um, the key factors to, to be uh, mm -hmm. considered for driving user adoption. It based on, again, ties back to the goal, launch goal, and how you can measure success and those are become like the key factors for user adoption in general. Um, sure. Because this is true for new products, existing products that could be different uh, metrics that you might be looking at, but especially new products, like what, um, what you have done and from your experience, if you can share some key factors. Yes, I think uh, the high level wise, there are three big things in this uh, topic. The first thing we just roughly talk, the right definition, the right understanding and the research for the customer's uh, and user's value proposition. And to, to make sure that value proposition can translate into the right max, metrics. That's the first thing. That's, a, that's, that's very critical. Because anything happened before, if it doesn't align, there is a high chance to, you know, will fail. Right. So that's the first portion. The second portion is the foundation for a data-driven approach, meaning you need to be making sure you have the proper data. You need to make sure the data, you know, data pipeline or, or data stream is properly done. You get a good enough or at least fresh enough data, right? And you also need to make sure there is not much noise in the data. So data quality is also very important. Right. These three things, making sure the data you are collecting are properly done and also good quality with good quality. 
And the finally, I think the third piece is the iteration. It doesn't matter if it's a machine learning AI product or it's a, you know the traditional product, it doesn't matter. Uh, doing things iteratively and trying to keep it improving is always better or let's say more realist, realistic to say that, hey, I am going to get this thing done in once properly. No, it's rarely happened. It may happen sometimes. It's rarely, but it's rarely happened for, you know, for the for the products that we are building, right? The only thing we can do best is that we keep learning and trying to observe. And then we do a little bit change to see whether it make it works better or not. So the, making sure the iteration is probably done and also tracking also the iterations like A-B testing is performed uh, properly is also, is also very critical. Yeah, absolutely. I completely echo with what whatever you said. And I remember the time at LinkedIn, what uh, I have done, especially um, we had a backlog of A-B test before we launch any product. Like sometimes we do the A-B test. And as you said, data driven, like we have the metrics where we have True North and then uh, the secondary metrics, guardrail metrics, we're watching all of that any of that, uh, because you're doing at scale and it's not easy. And then any early sign uh, will definitely help us to, like sometimes we even stop launching a model. Uh, as you said, like it is continuous iteration, but sometimes we also go down that path saying like, no, we will not launch this model. It's not going to add value and better to wait than rushing through it. So yeah, these are some of the key factors we might have to uh, adopt. Uh, of course, it's very different. Like if you're just doing a feature launch in a consumer experience, yeah, what's the big deal? Like if you do not uh, have the correct thing, then always you can roll back very quickly before others can start seeing. But model is not like that. And it's expensive because you're like looking at a large set of data and drawing insights. Uh, completely agree with you. These key factors somebody needs to consider if they are building such products. My, yeah. Anything else you want to add on this or I can go? Oh, I just want to emphasize one thing you mentioned uh, in the very last, which is the cost, the the, 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 the expense to make a model wrong. Again, uh, I think the last time we also talked a lot, multiple times about cost. Running machine learning model is not really free. And it's actually more expensive than, you know, just wrong, writing some stated code and the business logic inside. So making sure, you know, you are a and making sure you are aware of those costs is also very critical. Yeah, good call. Great. Uh, so uh, we had a great discussion on the key factors. Now dive into how do you uh, manage user expectations regarding the capabilities of uh, AIML product? Because it's again, the same thing, right? Um, nobody is seeing the value that AIML products are directly bringing. Uh, it's kind of invisible, uh, but it's very important like how we bake in the user expectations. Yeah, sure. This is actually a good question because it's always very challenging, especially when you build machine learning uh, AI based products or features. And you try to set up the right expectation with users because Fundamentally, not everyone is the, you know, the expert of the machine learning and AI, right? So there is always information gap between the users and, you know, the, the, the product team build this feature. But I think, uh, let's start from here. I want to mention two very different approach uh, in the machine learning AI world for customer, for setting up the expectation. 
One is more the, you know, the streamlined approach, which is more straightforward approach, which is, again, everything starts from user, uh, the, the value proposition, right? And you trying to set up a, the a, or a reasonable goal, like for example, you are going to, you want to see like 10% retention rate increase by applying this machine learning AI model, which is, you know, maybe more whatever you learn from maybe Netflix, right? They build the machine learning AI recommend, based recommendation to provide you some, you know, suggest of movie or TV progress. This one, you can follow this value proposition approach. But I also want to mention another totally uh, on the opposite side, totally different approach is that some company will drop a specific, you know, feature on the website saying that, hey, this is a new thing. I don't know whether it works or not, but you can try, see if you are lucky. You, you are lucky, right? And uh, it will randomly pump out some of the recommendations, but again, it's not, it doesn't tell you specifically, hey, I'm going to tell you those are things you like. Instead, the website or the company actually say that we are trying something new. Maybe it works for you, maybe it's not. You know, it's just, it's more like a gamification, right? It's more fun other than tell you the very specific value proposition. So I think that these two are actually both work in many cases. Uh, again, it could be case by case uh, differently, but uh, I do want to mention these two are very interesting ideas when you're trying to set up the right expectation with users. And also one thing, I think especially for machine learning IP and if you are customer facing, trying to find the right channel to educate users a little bit about the context of your machine learning feature or product. It's educational. Uh, you are not going to teach all the machine learning AI foundation, but again, it's just trying to fill in the gap between the users and whoever build this. Yes, I think that's also very important uh, mindset to have. Yeah, great thing you called out. Like as a PM, you're pretty much bridging the gap between the user and the uh, engineers are building this uh, great uh, models and algorithms. It's, it's extremely important. And I have heard uh, from somebody or uh, reading an article where it was written that a API product management, like AI ML product management, there's a lot of synergy with API product management where you're defining the interface, what is going to be the input and output. And a lot of time, the output is like determined by users, like what they are saying. But you as a PM, you need to translate that what it entitles to the input. Like for example, logistic and delivery companies like take Uber, like Uber is trying to show a menu um, when user is trying to log in and try to book an order. And sometimes this is very much personalized uh, based on the user context. And there are definitely ML models working towards it. But like as a user, I may like certain type of cuisine or certain type of food. As an AI MLPM, like how you will translate that to the input feature for the model so it can bring in right uh, kind of experience for the end user. That's very tricky. And mapping those two is not easy. And uh, and if we do map that right, and that would definitely meet the user expectations. So yeah, that is one thing Great. Um, so since we talked about managing user expectations, now let's dive into what are some of the considerations for scaling and maintaining these uh, data and AI ML products. 
Sure. Uh, I have my own framework or approach that I would like. I always like to use. I call it like a four P framework. Four P is a uh, people, process, product, and the price, right? And the people again, people including users, and people including also like uh, experts working in your team, right? You need to understand again. Users is always the value proposition. How can really benefit the users so that you go, you know, they will be very willing to onboard, right? And the specific for machine learning and AI, because you are working with way more different type of experts than before, not only engineers, but also, you know, uh, data scientists, data engineers, right? So how to find the right person and the, to make your product and the team scalable is also very critical. Mostly what will happen is that if you are building a, let's say, you know, if you are building a software product, if you say that, hey, we are behind and we increase some headcount, maybe it get some chance to catch up. It may not apply to machine learning AI. It doesn't guarantee you 2x uh, benefit if you hire 2x data scientists. Yeah, most of the time, you know, and in some cases, if people turn, right? For example, uh, uh, existing data scientists move their team or move out from the company, a new person join in, it also doesn't guarantee uh, the new person can catch up very quickly. It's because if you are familiar, if you try to play with some models, especially more the more advanced models, there is always so many different variables you need to fine tune. As some, in some cases or at some level, I would like to see data scientists actually not pure scientists. It's more the mix of engineering and art because there are some you know art to fine tune those variables. So that's the reason why you know the learning curve or the a new person to catch up is always very high. So that's the reason why people is important. The second is about process. Process again is about you know trying to making sure data, the data collection, data processing, data transformation, and the you know data assurance all get done in the in the very comprehensive process. If you go to larger scale, in some cases it doesn't mean you know the approach will always work because you know. Most of the time, people need or infra team needs to deal with the you know the physical data transfer the transfer transferring. And if you go to if some people may hear this funny story, Amazon need to move the data from one data center to another. In the beginning, they thought that you can just do the you know use the high speed internet to transfer data. Eventually, when after they do the calculation, they realize it's actually faster for them to pull out all the hard drive. And use the physical truck, move the whole hard drive to the new data center and put back in. It's actually faster and cheaper. It just tell you, you know, this software uh, environment is actually not so far from the physical limitations when you get scale, right? So process is also very important. The third is about, uh, you know, the price. Price is always about how much value you can bring to the users and that they are willing to pay versus how much cost you need to spend. Again, the tie back to we talk a lot about machine learnings are not easy. It's not free. It's not cheap, right? And the lastly is the uh, product itself. Product it can get, be a mix of you know infrastructure part, product feature part, customer facing part. That's also very important, especially when you're trying to build machine learning AI products. We talk a lot about there are there's always uncertainty coming out from machine learning models. So keep this in mind, trying to build the features or products uh, with the proper consideration and a little bit education as well, we just talked, will be also very important consideration. That's the 4P framework I always like to use.
Yeah, very nicely articulated. Uh, especially, I really liked your buckets. You are Amit. Oh, no. I am talking. Uh, are you able to hear me? Hello? Are you able to hear me? It seems like uh, Mohammed said they're able to hear me. Great, thank oh, you. Oh, is it working? Okay, let me change my sound. Oh. I think Nick, uh, your headphone may have issues. Yeah, maybe my headphone is a little better. Can you guys hear me now? Um, the voice is not very clear right now. Uh, is it better? It's slightly better. Uh, earlier it was more better, definitely. Okay. Let's see. Uh, oh, I can. oh, if you guys don't mind, I can use the. Yeah, now, now it's better. Now it's better. Oh, okay, cool. Then let's 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 keep going on. Yeah. Cool. Sorry, do we miss any part that I just finished? No, no, no. You you okay. finished everything. We heard everything. Okay. I was just okay. adding to that that um you have covered nice. I mean, I really like the buckets you mentioned. Uh, that um, is extremely important for uh, meeting scaling needs and scaling needs are not easy and uh, needs to be done very carefully. I just wanted to add two things. There's always urge, like if you're working on new products, there's always or urge to scale. Okay, now we need to scale. We need to scale, but there need to be uh, enough due diligence uh, need to be met before you try to scale. Uh, that's what one thing I would like to add and always uh, say no to scale unless you really uh, hit the product market fit uh, for the uh, product and it needs a it, like bunch of iterations. And sometimes these products, especially data science and AI ML product have seen, it takes at, I mean, a couple of months to years sometimes to be ready for scaling. That's one thing I wanted to add. And second thing, as you said, like very well said, like infrastructure and all these teams like where you need to be very, very careful, like how your compute process and everything working and you need a platform and infra experts also to be involved. And as you said, like involving them early on is always helpful and especially scaling, like their inputs are super, super critical. Um, so that's another thing I would like to add. Totally. Great. Um, let's dive into the last question of this section, uh, which is how do you handle customer feedback and iterate uh, on uh, such products? Because uh, once we launch, obviously we will do our due diligence of observing, making sure uh, it's meeting or the KPIs are performing well. But the big component is user inputs. And sometimes I've seen in earlier days, like ML models would need user to give feedback. Like now also, if you go to LinkedIn, they have recently launched this collaborative article. If you go there in the bottom, it says like it is generated by AI. Do you like this article? If not, like what is that? And that's primarily what they are doing is trying to collect the feedback from the user and improving the model. Um, I mean, of course, it has improved over the year where you don't need a lot of inputs from the user, but there's always data quantity versus quality that makes it harder. So um, love to hear uh, what are your thoughts uh, on this front? 
Yeah, well said. Uh, this, always, this is always the mixed requirement for qualitative and quantitative. Uh, quantitative maybe is, I won't call it easier, but it's more well-known, right? Because uh, again, when we just talk about the transition from uh, user's value proposition to metrics and then the data instrumentation to making sure uh, the data you collect and reflect the metrics, it's end-to-end -end, uh, process that you will work with lots of data analysts, data engineers, right? This is a good channel to get the quantitative feedback. I think a more challenging, or maybe it's more not so, uh, this for software products, it's, it's not so easy to instrument as the qualitative feedback. And uh, you know, when you play with like ChatGPT or other, you know, a gen AI type of product, you always see there's a feedback channel that you can sound up, sounds down. And if you are willing, you can also drop some of the you know wordings to say what's going on, why you like this, why you don't like this. I think this this is this great. This, but this is more like a, you know, mass a type of the questionnaire thing that you are hoping somebody will give you some response. I think it's also very critical to have uh, some focus group or some heavy users as your partner to making sure they have very strong engagement with you, trying to help you, your products to be successful. I think that, you know, this is trying to fill in a gap. Yes, it's, it's okay. It's, it's great to have some questionnaire or some sort of down, you know, uh, approach. But again, the engagement here is really limited. You also need to find the right group of people have way stronger engagement trying to be with you, trying to help you do your product to be successful. That's the, you know, that's that's probably something that I want to mention specifically. Yeah, great input and completely agree with you what you just said. I think uh, collecting the input, but sometimes you need to observe or have like focus group to do this exercise. Uh, one uh, other thing I wanted to add, uh, which was challenging, especially working on anomaly detection, we have faced that uh, when we launched the model to detect anomalies, we always needed feedback uh, in terms of, is it the right anomaly we detected based on, because it's very much business context uh, driven and it can't be generalized and usual inputs are very, very important in this case, like is it right anomaly versus not? And sometimes this tends to be noisy and you just start ignoring, like that's one of the challenge we face, like getting the right feedback and if you don't have enough feedback also, then obviously we can't also evaluate the model. Like, is it right? Like the data quantity versus quality. So the way we try to overcome this challenge, especially is we started reporting to end users that, hey, these many alerts you have configured on our platform. This is the accuracy based on whether you have provided or not provided feedback. Like if you have provided the feedback, this is how the accuracy looks like. But this whole bunch of alerts where we haven't got any feedback, we are assuming that you're finding that value. So having that messaging, I think address a lot of confidence in the users and they acknowledge like most of the time what happens is they read and they know this is a valid anomaly. They're just not telling us. So showing these reports kind of helped us to understand further and continue with our model evaluation and making sure like there is a indirect way of uh, customer feedback capture is happening. And then of course, uh, this iteration always needed. Um, yes, totally. Yeah. And for the iteration part, we had to work really closely with 
users at times like as you said focus groups really help and that i have seen very valuable because we don't have the business context at times what users are trying to accomplish and working with that focus group is super valuable anything else you wanted to add um, before no, I, I totally i totally agree that uh, you know especially in some specific domain like a risk or you know fraud detection those things secure trust and security the trying to make your model resolve into tiers is very critical like you mentioned right there is always risk or a risk level i also used to be in the trust and safety domain so i know the the pain because usually when we build the feature and the products for the you know typical users in some, most of the time there there will be always good and uh, bad feedback but at least they give feedback but the challenge of trust and safety domain is that if you are doing great job nobody will tell you great job because you are suspending bad guys those bad guys will not reach out back to say hey you are they you are doing good job because i got suspended right that's where it's so challenging to get the, you know the more focus group or direct feedback qualitative feedback from users so i totally agree trying to keep it like into tiers different tiers have different uh, you know approach to to reach out to them is very critical lower risk we may just send an email or other channel to say hey we think there might there might be some issue about your account. Can you validate or something like that? The higher risk, we just you know do more extreme approach, like for example, suspend, suspending or something like that. They will try to ease the fraction from from users for sure. Yes. Great. Well, that was a great discussion in terms of launching and scaling data science and AI ML products. Let's dive into our last section of the session. And once I go through the questions, I'll open up the floor for questions from audience. So the next section is the future of data science and AI ML product management, which all of us are curious about the people who are working in this play field or trying to get into this field. So the first question uh, is, what are the emerging trends and advancements can we expect in this field? Yeah, sure. I can share some of my thoughts. The first thing is that, of course, I don't have to mention how popular large language model or Gen AI is now. So certainly it's a thing. Keep doing research, you know, on your own, trying to see how, what's the correlation between Gen AI technology and the, your product features. But also don't forget the traditional machine learning AI because Gen, and Gen AI fundamentally is, is basically unsupervised model, meaning there, were, there was always some error happen right maybe it's a good approach for your problem you want to address maybe the more traditional you know supervised models like a uh, neural network those things with tagging uh, result could be actually a better approach for your problems you need to you know it's case by case there is no there is no one fit everything approach here right so i think you know trying to balance keep looking at the gen ai trending but also don't forget there is another huge group of machine learning ai, AI technology out there is very critical and uh, there are also two extra things i think the first one is the transparency right it's a matter for your product's reputation matter for your company's reputation matter for your responsibility as a pm so trying to making sure uh, we talk about you know for example fraud detection right or trust and safety keeping some of the inform relevant information transferred to users so that, that they can understand you know it's also a little bit more educational trying to tell them and educate them the reason why we make this decision and how it very high level in very high level uh, perspective how it roughly works can increase the confidence from the user 
I think that's uh, also very critical. Another thing is observability. Observability is also a foundation to make the transparency work. So it, they two are some kind of correlated, but transparency, uh, observability is more technical driven because you need to make sure from the data instrumentation, from whatever data you're collecting, making sure cleaning up data is properly done, everything here. And you also have a tool to capture those information are all the critical component to making sure you have the capability to perform data observability. So I think this too is very, especially very critical for machine learning uh, products and features. And uh, these two are, you can see lots of, you know, big companies, startups are trying to building things for this two big topic. Yeah, thanks for uh, sharing the tech trends, which is really valuable in the space because um, AIML product and data science products need, are very technical. And uh, literacy gap is a big area that everyone is trying to solve out. There's a bunch of effort going on. And you rightly said, like, uh, clearly evaluate between LLM and AIML products because LLM is unsupervised, so it does need a lot of effort in terms of training those models right and that's one area like definitely in future is going to be very um powerful and a lot of people will be investing a lot in there and overall like nvidia is doing what i i think there are only few companies who are able to run these models at a much cost effective way and that's another area i can think of at a high level it sounds like if I think about or like this whole ecosystem and place, how we are trending is like one gen AI, which is much more advanced. We're still a lot to catch up over there. Uh, the future of gen AI, I've heard also some forums is Meta GPT, that you're trying to automate the gen AI. But I feel like those two things are still like very advanced and futuristic in the current, like if you talk about one to three years, and there are definitely a lot of things that are happening, like industry especially has seen like fintech, health tech uh, are the booming areas where a lot of AI, ML, Gen AI related work is also happening. Like uh, I think Sasan, who is Intuit's uh, CEO, he recently announced, I have seen his post on LinkedIn, like their Intuit is doing a lot of strides on Gen AI, Gen AI but at the same time, they're also making a lot of investment in AI, ML and been doing for long. And the way I see this ecosystem is folded into like three buckets. One is the whole uh, tech space, right? The tooling part of AIML. And as you said, like observability and things like that, it's still like a lot to catch up there. And definitely that is a growing area in terms of trends and who are thinking for career in this space. They can think about if there is a background in tech, uh, then they can start thinking in this area, especially. There's another area I've seen also is on RISE, which is applications of AI ML. Uh, I know one company called in Bay Area called Skyhive, they are investing in upskilling and reskilling, and they do a lot of ML applications built on top of it. And that's another area like where you need, need not be so much tech, but understanding the basic concepts, but if you're really good at AI, ML, oh, sorry, application building, you can definitely like make some investment there in terms of your career transitions. Health tech also I've seen like marketplace is one big thing. The third component I've seen is making data available because that's another big area, which is like data integrations and how to make the right area data 
like present and data processing, like how you can process this large scale data at much quicker time. Um, these are like extremely important, the whole data domain. And this is a lot to catch. And trend-wise, I think these three areas I can see totally like going in advanced thinking, Gen AI and Meta GPT is another area I can think of. Anything oh. else you want to add um, before I... Oh, I totally agree, especially this Gen AI trend is really something interesting because I still remember when I was still working at PayPal, right? That's before. That's right before the Gen AI, you know, booming and we still have those like internal conversations say that hey most of our machine learning approach are you know supervised more traditional like neural network those things we are thinking is there if if there is any use case that we can think of the unsupervised model right and uh, i didn't have the any answer you know before i left the company and the later when i joined a new company then the gnis thing just suddenly boom right it's just coming from nowhere to become like everywhere so I really like, you know, I really like to think this is a really interesting scene, uh, situation of, and also timing because we can see a technology coming from. Of course, there are some experts already being in the domain for quite a while, but for applications, it used to be nowhere, but just within a year, it become everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, so we had a great discussion and emerging trends. So let's dive into um, my next question. How will AI ML impact various industries? I briefly touched base, um, but love to hear your thoughts and how it is getting shaped uh, in terms of like future. Yes. Uh, I think, it, like I mentioned, this is a very interesting timing. I feel like this is probably similar timing when we go back to, you know, people just invent the, the combusting engine, right? Or people just invent the PC. Now people invent the AI, machine learning AI method that's easy to be used by everyone, which is the beauty of Gen AI. So I think I do see there is a very important impact to the, the, to the general population is that there are more and more people start to really consider or talk about low code or no code. Because traditionally, the way we build product is that, you know, we hire a bunch of engineers, which is the expert to, you know, write a, uh, write a software or, you know, uh, design hardware, right? And they'll build a feature, we sell it. Now we are seeing this trending that the more and the more no-code or low-code tool can help general population. People don't know how to code or people know very little about writing code can even build some functionality for their use or even sell it to other people, right? I think that this trending is like, I think this fundamentally to tie back to the, you know, the user's value proposition. I, I will take one thing as an example. When we take, you know, the people's resume, we always like, sometimes we always see people say that, you know, hey, I am an analyst, I know how to build dashboard. But the really the value as an analyst to bring in is really just build dashboard. No, it's not. It's actually provide insight to the decision maker to make a decision, right? So the, the real critical part is actually the insight part, not really the dashboard. I think we are moving into this situation that you know once we can enable more and more local or no code, building dashboard this type of hard skill won't be is still relevant. But uh, what I'm trying to describe is that this, this is actually not the final step to address the problem. Getting inside, make a decision is really the critical part to make a, you know, to address the problem, right? So 
one one example here is that if you take a look at most current news, Microsoft or maybe other partners already start to apply machine learning and AI in Excel. Excel is an easy tool to be used already, but you know people are trying to enable lots of uh, machine learning AI uh, features on top of it without knowing how to write a model, right? I think that's a really good example, and we can, we can actually see it's happening everywhere. Manufacturing, fintech, uh, you know, the robots, those things are all happening more or less. So I do want to, you know, bring this up: no code or low code trending that can hugely transfer the the industry, many different industries from looking for very specific hard skill to more soft skill to understand users' need build the right feature, make a right decision, and then provide the right service. Yeah, very well said. And in terms of industries, I completely agree. I think it's not limited to like FinTech or e-commerce or um, say uh, health tech or ed tech. Those are like quickly adopting AIML and going making strides. But I feel like every industry, there's an opportunity, whether it's IoT or even car manufacturing or the robots or robots and uh, stuff like that being built. Like right now you can see um, people are delivering, like instead of human are delivering food, like there's robots are delivering food. Um, so that's pretty interesting. And we are in this interesting era that there is so much opportunity and I believe like at some point every industry needs to be AIML equipped it's similar to how we had .NET back long time back it was yep. a norm for every company digitalization overall and I totally see this is totally going into that space and uh, I totally resonated with you as you said about a uh, like no code low code uh, UI that was pretty interesting because right now I own the anomaly detection product at my early stage uh, startup and it's a product which was also incubated at LinkedIn and now we are taking it to scale and giving in the hands of the users as the product evolved we also started focusing more on the low code no code experience because not everyone knows how to use an algorithm how to uh, make a model work but they know their business context and what exactly they want to uh, do from it. Like, for example, analysts providing the insights and decision makers are uh, making decisions. But analysts, if you ask them to write a model and an algorithm and draw insights, that'll be too much. for um, and, and then it's not also scalable, like individual to acquire multiple like skills. Um, so I think low code, no code is going to be a huge uh, game shifter, especially in this space. Um, totally. Agree. Uh, it's a great thing to segue into my next question, which is what are some of the skills and knowledge uh, all of us, in fact, or uh, especially data science and AI ML product managers need to um, definitely work on building it. Uh, of course, there's always a product fund fundamental and those skill sets are by default needed, but what are some of the delta they need to know? Yeah, totally. Again, like you mentioned, there is always two portions. One portion is more like a PM foundations, right? Skills apply to any different type of PMs. There's also some skills or mindsets very specific, you know, maybe better for machine learning AI product managers. Let me start from the foundation. Foundation, again, I think most of people will agree there are five things. 
you need to know the business, right? And you need to have some technical communication skills. You need to understand a little bit about design, not a design degree, but at least understand what's good, what's easy to use for users. Then you certainly need to good at communication because you are kind of the hub of different, lots of different experts. And finally, data-driven. You need to know a little bit about, about data. You don't need to, you don't have to know how to write SQL or other type of, you know, Python. But at least you need to be able to have the data-driven mindset, talking a little bit about data uh, language. So these are the five foundations for all the PMs now, my, my opinion. There is one thing specifically for machine learning and the AI PM, which is I'm seeing this trend in this domain. You either go deep or you either go broad. When, you, when I say go deep, meaning if you are the PM to build a you know, data in machine learning AI infra, machine learning AI foundations, you probably not necessarily you need to have maybe, for example, PhD in this domain, but at least you need to have a solid background to be able to communicate because the people work with you most of the time were probably you know, PhD from like data or from engineering. So this is where I mean go deep for the infra and the platform type of the products. But if you are machine learning AIPN want to apply to different use cases, that's where I, do I mean by go broad. You need to be a fast learner because you don't need to go deep into, oh, oh I, know, I totally understand how this model works. You don't need to do that, but you need to do, have a rough idea, the right interpretation about how this model can perform and what could be the right use, what potentially could be right use cases for this model. And then you start to look in for opportunity to apply, right? So this is where do I mean by fast learner or go broad? And again, it's always a decision whether you want to go which route, but I'm just seeing that this U-shape type, type of the trending for this domain's uh, specific PN need to make some decision. Yeah, very well said, like going broad and that's where the collaboration skills um, could be uh, very important. And if somebody is a good collaborator, they can think about some of these areas and based on the background, they can decide which path to take. Um, I know we have six minutes, so I'll open up the floor for questions. I had two more questions that I'll hold on to that. Um, I'll probably share offline. Uh, let's open up. I have enabled, um, all of you can unmute yourself and also turn on your video if you want. If you have any questions, please chime in. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, folks. I mean, Nick, that was very insightful. I had a quick question. This is a little bit more on the product iteration side. So you kind of like feel like there's some iteration at some global level, like you, you define the value prop. You're still not sure because maybe the nature of the performance would change the user behavior. So how would you iterate? <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, like it's, there's a concern of throwing away the model all the time that goes into building something, let's say with a limited data set, and then you find the users are actually more, care more about something, whether if it's UX element or AI. So how does a, a PM like on the strategic side plan for it, <laughs> for iterations? So the outcome could be just a dollar value and, and this is a little bit more specific, not to let's say with the goal of better fraud detection, but let's say from a user experience of let's say generative AI, for example, like I'm gonna create better 
dynamic presentation, something like that. Really appreciate it. Thank you so for, thank you so much. Uh, Nick, you want to yeah. start? And I, can, I can start sharing my thoughts and you can also add your thoughts as well. So I think the interesting part, especially when we talk about data in general, data governance, data regulation, or even machine learning AI regulations, there is one thing I noticed uh, is that the regulation is always coming from some, some specific domain. And once some countries started then more, in many cases, other country or other region will probably come up with something similar. So I think this is one approach if you are talking about regulations, right? Uh, my, expe my experience is that, for example, EU always come up with the data governance requirement the earliest, the earliest, meaning the approach you design for this is probably could apply to many other countries later, right? So our go-to-market strategy will become, if we are considered about regulation then we will start from EU, right? For the data governance or data regionalization, regionalization or GDPR, those things. But it, there's another, another big point if you care about the user feedback. That's where you know you need to take a look at traditionally different regions population has a different way to interact with you know, the uh, pro service providers, right? Some regions tend to provide more insightful information than others. Then this is the second dimension you need to think when you consider go-to-market, you know, uh, whether you want to get the data first and consider regulation second, or you want to consider regulations first, then, you know, user feedback second. It, it will be really different product to product, feature to feature. So, but again, fundamentally, these two are the very, very big topic considerations that you need to make, make a decision on top of it. I want to quickly add, um, Muhammad, just to understand, you had asked your uh, question also, how to like predict the user behavior and user experience, right? Is that what you had asked? Just to make sure I have understood correctly. It's more about like, how do you set up an iterative process? So I've set a quarterly goal, increase engagement. I mean, well, first of all, adoption. Let's say you got weak adoption from power users and, but as you try to generalize, you find like use cases are very different. People are just experimenting, excited about the future. They're not really incorporating their workflows, right? So it's almost like you're going, almost going back to zero. So your investment in building a model. So it sounds like earlier, maybe you want to think about from value first and then do the minimum viable experience, I guess. And then once you do the minimal viral experience, you could iterate on that. Or you think a little bit longer term and invest on a more flexible model. Is that what it sounds like? Yeah, so uh, thanks for clarification. So the way I have done, and I'm working on a early stage product, so still working on product market fit. So it's kind of tricky area. Um, so obviously you have a most valuable product. Knowing your primary segment is very, very important. And you start with one use case, but it's a journey. Like as you said, um, sometimes you, it's very hard to uncover um, like what is the right use case and what is the segment? Because when you start doing that, then you learn. So the approach we have taken is work with the design partner. Sometimes you have design partners, especially in B2B space they're safe to work with and they are giving you constant feedback and you're learning. Once you learn some basics and you have confidence, okay, 
okay, now your product looks like working for this persona and this is the thing so that you're not like building too much. And uh, you have kept a mind of like iterative. Of course, you do have some long-term ideas, but I think it's very hard to form that at this early stage. So what has really worked is the continuous learning. Once you have that baseline, then it is all about you make different hypotheses and how quickly you can validate those hypotheses. And uh, I have not come, always taken the route of building a model and delivering that output to the users. But what I've done uh, instead is like messaging, like you create like blog post and try to address, like if you have a hypothesis to going after this persona, then you create a blog post or a messaging and see if that resonates well. And you create another persona and then messaging and then see who are converting first. So th those are some of the signals you can take. It being long-term in terms of this phase of the journey is harder. But if you are already launched something and uh, then you can be more strategic in terms of um, what your like future looks like. And that was the journey I had learned at LinkedIn where we had uh, the ecosystem in place, like feed ranking as an example. Um, but discovery, discovery, sorry, discovering the right feed was challenge at that time like for example in your feed do you want to look at the influencer feed because that will come with a lot of experience and belief versus like some amateur is writing how you can rank that like that was one of the challenges at that time we were working although you know there is a feed ranking working well but how you iterating on that and in that phase uh, we can be a little strategic in terms of what we are doing but still it is iterative so when you're as a PM writing those you already know what that hypothesis are going to be and how you're going to validate that so big part of the strategy doc was like what are the A-B tests or experiments you will run ahead of time and bringing SMEs ahead of time as Nick was saying earlier and having this collaborative discussion with data scientists um, like legal and news team at that time and we will all like get together and review that before even like going to work but that is more fixed box area where you know at least some of the challenges and if it is like very um, beginning of a product journey, it is tricky. I hope uh, I answered your question. Oh, we, yes, uh, thank you so much, appreciate it. Cool. Um, I know a little over time, um, I can stay, Nick, how about you? Oh yeah, if there is any further question. Sure, any other questions any of you have? Okay. Looks like none. <laughs> you have one? Go ahead. Yeah, so on a similar thought, so in a zero to one, I guess, environment, right? Uh, how would you, and you, I heard earlier the tip of bringing on board the, the data science team. Um, how would you set, well, I guess, like, how do you create an environment where we're really not sure, like the level of the variance of the unknown is high, Right, which like if you mentioned with like API, you kind of like have to make some decisions and make a cut and then you go with it and then you get market reaction. Uh, but in this scenario, you're more experimental than an API, right? So how do you set that expectations with engineering, the data science team to let them know that, hey, we're actually 
think it's these three vectors, let's say, or these three areas that the customers really want based on some validation. So what are your tips in that area to, to set that expectation, communicate that? So I definitely have something to add. I'd love to hear Nick uh, and then I can add. Okay, sure. I have two viewpoints here. I think the first one is always analogy because the application use cases will be always different in your domain, your industry, in your uh, business. But the model itself can actually, it's most of the time model was mod, is modified slightly for your use case, right? So if, if you are talking about recommendation, you probably can borrow some experience from other industry, from use cases from different from other places to see usually how this model can perform. But again, there is always uncertainty for machine learning, but just as a reference point to start with, that's the first uh, viewpoint. You, with this, you can at least give the stakeholders a range of expectation, not a specific number, a range to start with. And the second is always make the process and iteration progressive. Uh, last time we roughly talked about, you know, one of my experiences that we starting from, you know, rule base. And in the, at the same time, we start to build a machine learning approach, but starting from very simple, easy machine learning model. And the later next phase, we bring in a more sophisticated, uh, smarter machine learning model and keep doing this. So that it will give you a chance to set up, set up right stage and also give you a little bit more time to buy your data. Yeah, so that those hopefully can help you to come up with more realistic, you know, expectations share with your stakeholders and the partners. Yeah. Yep. I just wanted to add a couple of things. I know uh, you were mentioning like challenge with setting the right expectation with data science team. And that is tricky because I've worked with data science team. If you're continuously changing the requirement, they feel frustrated. And I completely empathize with that, uh, that frustration is definitely valid and as nick said like having the setting the expectation right in uh, like as soon as possible is helpful the other thing i have done uh, is i usually try to say for example some idea i wanted to work with a data scientist i do a lot of groundwork early on like doing discovery myself and maybe getting a kaggle data set or real world data set and playing around with it and identifying what are the challenges and really showcasing those challenges and those are like from those challenges try to build hypothesis maybe we should do this then it will help like for for an example um, working on anomaly detection the existing models we had um, i had got e-commerce data to see if the model is able to detect the right kind of anomalies and when i tried that resulted in bunch of errors and uh, like the accuracy was not great the other thing I noticed is like e-commerce needs to be very timely. And if the data is not coming in real time, that was also a one challenge. So these challenges I kind of identified and I built some hypothesis. I looked at in the market trends and what are the models other people are using for similar situation. And then I had an hypothesis built like, okay, maybe this is the right model to use for e-commerce use case versus something else or if we want to be more real time then maybe these are some of the things we need to work on like data onboarding piece and showing that um data driven approach has 
made like a lot of uh, impact work and that has eased out because now they know what are the challenges they are able to empathize and sometimes making them find that also is helpful like we as a pm telling sometimes people who don't like but uncovering and then asking them like what are your inputs and thoughts like do you see this an issue and we should work on or not and that collaborative uh, engagement has always worked That's amazing. Thank you so much. Great. Um, I know we are way over time. Uh, we'll probably wrap up. Um, I hope you all found this uh, session useful. Uh, just uh, any wrap up thoughts, Nick, um, we wanted to share, like in terms of, I think it'll be good for the audience to know uh, what are some of the opportunities they can, and then key takeaways they can take with them. So that yeah, so, uh... for this evolving space. I think always keep open-minded and to be willing to learn is always most critical, you know, mindset in this domain. And I personally are still keep looking for, you know, new applications, especially it's a mixed uh, use case. So for example, human and the machine, right? Or real and the virtual, or, you know, some, maybe some uh, uh, software hardware integration, those things. I think those will become the second wave of machine learning use cases can apply lots of the helpful benefit to bring to bring lots of benefit to the table. So I personally are still, you know, very happy trying to see, you know, what's happening in this domain specifically. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you very much for your time and uh, audience time and asking great questions. Uh, so with that, we will wrap up this uh, session and hope uh, you, um, oh, yeah, if if you are interested how to connect with us, we are always available on LinkedIn. So you can definitely reach out on DM us. And uh, I will be publishing those insights in my newsletter and podcast channel. So feel free to subscribe to those so that you can keep hearing. And if we are doing more sessions, then you'll definitely get um, updates to it. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Madhu. Thanks, everyone.